Lord, I thank you that this declaration, it is well with my soul, is a true promise for us as well. That regardless of circumstance, regardless of what is going on around us, regardless of what is going on in us, regardless of what is going on with us, God, because of your great love demonstrated towards us through your son, Jesus, it is well with our soul. And Lord, I thank you that we are now reconciled with the God of creation, where once we were separated because of our own sin and our own stupidity, God, you've brought us back. You've brought, you've given those of us who were dead life in you, and I just thank you for that beautiful promise, and thank you that because of this new life and this beautiful relationship we have with you, God, nothing else that might impact our lives, our daily day moments, Lord, nothing else really holds any significance. Not in your presence. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to come this morning to worship you, to celebrate you, to honor you. Lord, we pray that, God, during this time, as your spirit is working, may you work in us, in our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to turn us towards you, God, to have our eyes set on you and every thought that we have brought under submission to Christ, every desire we might have to be a desire that's in line with what you want for us. And God, that we would seek to know you more as a result of this time. We love you and praise you and thank you for the saints and thank you for the opportunity for the saints to gather to seek and worship you, our faithful God and King. In Jesus' name. Good morning and welcome to Awaken. I, uh, I don't know about you, I love mornings like these. I don't know if you walked out the door, you took a deep breath, and it was just like, man, this is beautiful. This is the day that the Lord has made, and that's really, really been cool. And uh, I'm excited as well about jumping in to week four of our core value series. And I know you guys are saying, really, that's what we're getting excited about? Seven weeks of going through our core values, really? And my thought is, man, what we should be saying is uh, seven weeks of going through our core values. Awesome, right? This is amazing. And if we imagine that our doctrines, our statement of faith, are like the bones of our church, then the core values are kind of like the meat. It's, the, it's what allows our church to flex and to move. It's part of our DNA. And core values aren't necessarily like doctrinal statements. Core values are those ideas that this is how we see putting faith into practice. And so up until this point, we've covered grace, which is God's undeserved, unmerited favor that's designed to power our faith, and then commitment to God and his word, which defines how we are to know God in relationship with him. And then last week, Andrew went through the Great Commission, which is our mission as a church. And so this morning, we're going to take some time and walk through the idea of what church is, right? And an understanding that we're going to come to is that the church is God's people, gathered together to celebrate, honor, and worship him. That is what the church is 
designed to be. And so the way we're going to go about doing this this morning is I'm going to put on my Andrew Roberts hat, because I know you guys all miss him being on this camping trip. Um, I'm going to put on my Andrew Roberts hat, and I'm going to take you on a quick journey through church history. And we're going to take a look at three key historical moments in the church that will help you understand how and why God has designed the church to accomplish this goal of celebrating, honoring, and worshiping him. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to begin. This is the church's origin story. For those of us who are superhero fans, we always love a good origin story. And the origin story of the church begins here in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples in context, and he's already performed two of the great miracles that uh, he does, the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. And it's in the aftermath of these miracles that Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them a very important question. He actually asks them two really important questions. And so he begins in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So this is a real important question, right? Jesus' secret identity, this idea of who he is. It's like, what do people think about me? What do people say about my identity? And the disciples responded, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. It's like, okay. They, the people have, are finding a frame of reference within which to understand who Jesus is. And then he asks them the real question. Jesus moves on and asks them the question he really wanted to ask. And that question is, then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? You're my best and brightest students. You're my closest and most trusted friends. You've been traveling with me this entire time. You know me, I think, right? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Can you imagine the pride of Jesus in that moment saying, yes, you get it, right? His teaching, his words, they have not been in vain. They get it. And Jesus recognizes the enormity of this moment. And so when we read these next verses, listen to it from Jesus' perspective with this sense of excitement that Jesus is like, yes, my ministry has not been in vain. You guys get it. So Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Upon this rock I will build my church. This is the first time church is used in the New Testament. It's the first time this word ecclesia comes up in the scriptures. This is the origin. This is the birthplace of the church right here. And this is what Jesus is saying with this declaration, with that statement, right? His, again, he's responding to, Jesus, or, uh, to Peter's declaration that 
you are the Messiah, son of the living God. And what Jesus is saying, that is the rock, right? The rock is not Peter. The rock is not Dwayne Johnson. The rock is not a person. The rock is this foundational declaration of the church, ironclad, irrefutable, indispensable. Jesus is the Messiah, son of the living God. And with that declaration, what Jesus put forth is this idea, because it hasn't become actualized yet, but this idea that this church that Jesus is envisioning, which we are experiencing in reality, the church doesn't have to have a building. The church doesn't have to involve any more than a few people devoted to Christ. The church doesn't have to have greeters, refreshments, pastors, a band, communion, or even a Bible. None of these things are absolutely essential parts of being a church. But Jesus, Jesus has to be the rock. Jesus has to be the chief cornerstone. And if he is, then all of hell and anything that might oppose him will never conquer the church. The people of God, starting from this moment, will never be destroyed and never be conquered. People themselves might live and die. Christians might live and die. But this movement of God's people called the church will endure forever. So what is the lesson that I want you guys to take away from this first historical moment? The lesson I want you to take is from the beginning, I want us to understand that the church has been, this, has, the, has been a movement that's revolved around this very simple and yet foundational idea. The word ecclesia actually means like a gathering, right? A coming together of people, a congregation, and that gathering of people, this ecclesia was coming together for the purpose of seeking to celebrate, honor, and worship Jesus this is why the church exists. So when you strip away everything else, when you strip away this idea of denominations and you strip away ministries and all the structures and doctrines of the church, what you're left with is a gathering of people that fundamentally have to answer this question, right? Ask and answer this question. Are we here to celebrate, honor, and worship Jesus as Messiah and King? Because if our reason for gathering is anything else, then we're missing out on what God has called, imagined the idea of the church being. Brothers and sisters, I get it, right? All of you, all of us, we've got lives. We've got things to do. We've got people to see. We've got work that needs to get Done, And I know that in the midst of all the things that we've got going on and all the things that we see needs to get done, sometimes we can come together on Sunday mornings or come together during the week in home groups and imagine that it's just one more thing on my list of things to do. And I want to challenge you to think differently. Our gathering together to celebrate and to worship Jesus can't ever become this incidental thing that we do. And I know, because anything that we do is habit, just kind of becomes a bit taken for granted. And I just want to shake that up and say, guys, brothers and sisters, there's anything we have learned not to take for granted. Let it be our time to gather, to celebrate, to honor, and to worship God. 
We exist. This is the reason why we exist. As a church of the people of God, to bring him glory, to know him and to make him known. We are the light of the world. We are this insurgent, we are the insurgent force in the world created to oppose the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is who we are. We are God's ambassadors. We speak with his voice, we embody his heart, we accomplish his mission, we represent him in everything that we do. This is a part of our identity. This is who we are, this is the church. And a church, a body that was born in Matthew 16 and continues to exist and thrive today. Amen? Historical moment number two, opening day in the book of Acts. So Matthew chapter 16 represents the birth of the church in an idea form. But the first time the church becomes actualized and filled with the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts. And in chapter 1, Luke foreshadows this miracle that is to come. So Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Luke writes, So when the, when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set these dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this moment takes place with about 100 disciples just a few weeks after the resurrection. And these apostles, these disciples are gathered around with the idea that, Jesus, you have risen from the dead. You are true. You prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are the Messiah. Now is the time that the kingdom is brought forth. And we are ready to not only follow, but die for you. And Jesus tells them this, right? That you know what? The time that the kingdom's coming, it's not for you to know and not even for me to know. Only God the Father knows. Wait, what? Right? And you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the other most parts of the world. What are you talking about, Jesus? I thought we were in this together. I thought you rose from the dead, and that this is, this is the culmination. This is the moment. And then, Jesus, what happens right after this? He ascends. It's the ascension. He goes up to be with the Father. And the disciples are left there, hundred of them just looking, watching him disappear and say, wait, what just happened? They're confused until the prophetic word of Jesus comes true. So seven days after the ascension, seven days of these disciples huddled together, confused, wondering what is going on? What is Jesus going to accomplish? Trying to break down and analyze his words. What did Jesus meant? That this idea that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon us. And what do you mean that we're going to be witnesses? What does all this involve? And then the day of Pentecost comes. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. And they start speaking in tongues in the midst of this, this Pentecost festival. And they're proclaiming God. And everyone around them, all of these Jewish folks are, are hearing the gospel proclaimed to them in their own language. 
And these devout Jews who have come to Pentecost and hearing these words are like, what does all of this mean? And Peter then stands up and he says, I got it now. And he tells them that what is happening right now, what you are hearing is what God promised and more what the prophets of old prophesied would happen. The Messiah, the king that we've been waiting for, he has come and you missed him. And instead of welcoming him with open arms, you had him crucified and killed. And then Peter declares in verse 32 and 33, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Peter understands now, okay, this is what a witness looks like. This is what witnessing does. It means we simply tell what we have seen, heard, and experienced. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us, just as you see and hear today. Verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Peter's telling them, this is what you have missed, guys. And we saw it with our own eyes. As a matter of fact, you saw it with your own eyes as well. You're also a witness. You just didn't understand what was going on. And in the midst of that realization, the people respond in verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter's response, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That is a remarkable statement right there. And what, what Peter is saying right here is saying that, guys, this promise of the Lord and Messiah Jesus come to you is for you. Repent, believe, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you this, it's not just for you, it's for you, it's for your children, it's for your descendants, it's for people far off in the future that we can't even see or imagine, but God knows and sees and imagines. This is the work of God. It is multicultural, it's multi-ethnic, it's multi-generational. It affects every nation, every tribe, every people group throughout history. And the idea that Peter's communicating here that most of the people listening probably didn't get, but we understand looking back, is that there is no one, no one beyond the reach of God. And that we all share, for those of us who have believed, in this responsibility to be witnesses. So what's the lesson of this second historical moment? That the church, right? What is the church again? It is the gathered people of God coming together to celebrate and worship Jesus, right? That we as the church have been entrusted with a mission to bear witness of Christ to the world. In other words, the idea in the church actualized was that, yes, this is what the church is designed to do, but you understand to celebrate, to honor, and to worship Jesus is not something simply we do in this small group or this small gathering, it involves proclamation as well. We tell Jesus to the world, right? We bear witness to the world. 
The church was never designed to be a group that gathered together to sing Kumbaya and ignore the rest of the world. If that was true, then the church would not only have been born in the first century, it would have died in the first century as well. No. An aspect of how we celebrate, honor, and worship Jesus is by proclaiming him. And you and I, every single one of us who put our faith in him, we have been called to and charged with the responsibility of being witnesses. Witnesses. What is God's, What have we seen, heard, and experienced God do in our lives? And we simply share that experience with others. We don't have to be offensive. We don't have to be obnoxious. But we bear witness with our words and with our lives of what Christ has done. The church is not a social club. It's a movement. And movements move, right? This is why, as a church, we regularly encourage and challenge you guys to be involved in moving, right? To not only to be able to take a look around at who are the people God has put in my life. And how does he want me to engage him in conversation? How does he, where does he want to take our relationship? How can we imagine inviting them to church, inviting them to take a next step with God, to serve them, love them, and care for them the way Jesus has called us to, the way Jesus would if he was also here? And he is in us, right? This is why our church is focused on the next generation, because we know we have a responsibility to witness and care for those who are not only here but far off. This is why the church regularly challenges you guys, right, to be involved in acts of service, to be involved in things like Pray for Jacks, to be involved in volunteering at CMARC, to be involved in outreach days, to be involved in serving and getting outside of our community, looking outward and not looking in, and to be a part of serving together, alongside one another, bearing witness together. These are why these things are important. We're not trying to add one more thing to your list of things that you've already got to get done. This is what it means to be a part of community, to be a part of the church, to be the church. Being a witness means we share the good news with others. God has given us the gospel. He's empowered us by his spirit. What are you going to do? The third historical moment is found in Acts chapter 15 that we're going to go through. And this was, uh, this was a problem. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2, we'll talk to you about what that problem is that came up in the church. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So, in the days of the early church, almost all of the believers were Jews. They started in Jerusalem. They were Jewish converts. Even when they were forced out by persecution to go into other cities and other places where these new Christians tended to go was into synagogues, into places they were familiar where Jews gathered and they shared the gospel with their people, people they knew, people they understand, people with whom they shared a language, people with whom they shared a culture. 
But then it went beyond that. There were some who felt burdened, Paul and Barnabas in particular, to go and share the gospel with Gentiles. And Gentiles are simply non-Jews. That means most of us, if not all of us in this room, we're non-Jews, right? We would be considered Gentiles. And then there came this problem. So as Paul and Barnabas are going out, sharing the gospel, and seeing non-Jews, seeing Gentiles converted, then these Jews are coming alongside and saying, wait, 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 wait. For them to actually become believers, they need to observe Jewish law. They need to get circumcised, as an example, which is not a very comfortable thing to do if you're an adult. I don't think it's comfortable when you're a kid either, but it doesn't. And so what has happened here is that the people are revolting and they're resisting and they're saying, no, 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 no. That doesn't make any sense. And so there became this great debate. And so the, tasks, the church says, okay, Paul Barnabas, you're going to go to the authorities. You're going to go to the elders, the apostles in Jerusalem, which is still the center of faith in this time, and see what we are to do. And the questions they had is, one, how are Gentile believers going to become a part of the church? And then what does it mean for Jews and Gentiles to be able to worship together? These are huge issues of the day. And so in Jerusalem, at this gathering where these church leaders and elders and apostles have come, including Peter and James, they discuss this intractable problem. And at the heart of the debate, the biggest problem they kept running into was this wall. And this problematic wall that they kept running into is that the Jewish believers were still Jews. In other words, in coming to faith, they did not re reject or turn their back on their Jewish faith, which means we are still bound by the laws of Moses. We still have traditions and practices that are unique to our culture and to our people, and becoming a believer doesn't change that. And to be fair, God never asks them to. But what does this mean now for the faith if non-Jews, these Gentiles, are also becoming believers? Well, for these Jews, the answer was logical, right? Because in the Old Testament, if a Gentile, a non-Jew, wanted to become a believer of God, what did they have to do? They had to become a Jew. They had to observe Jewish laws, and that's how they gained access to God, Yahweh. And so for the Jews, it made total sense. Their idea is, well, what changes now? If the Gentiles want to be in relationship with God, they should become Jews as well. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. That's how it should work today. But the Gentiles had a problem with that. The Gentiles were like, wait, wait, we didn't come to faith by observing the law. That's what Jesus has changed. And so if we had, didn't come to faith because of law, why now as believers should we be forced to observe the law? That's the dilemma. And the solution that they came to here in Acts 15 is ingenious, and it also is a solution that has great application to us today, right? This is what James shared was a resolution these apostles and church leaders came to. Verse 19, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. So, 
The decision of James and these leaders is that let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles to become a part of the church. Instead, let's just give them four things to observe. And it's a real weird set of four things, right? Don't eat food offered to idols. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't eat meat from strangled animals. That's a tough way to go. And then don't eat or drink blood. You'd think if James was saying, you know what, let's just pick four laws that these Gentiles should obey, it would be like, uh, don't murder, uh, don't steal, don't worship idols. You know, they choose some of the big ones, but instead they choose these. And if you understand what James is doing here, everything starts to make sense. It's really quite remarkable. And so what James is saying here, and what the idea behind this passage is, is that the expectation for these Gentiles, these Gentile believers, is not that they become Jews. We're going to reject that idea. They don't have to become Jews in order to be a part of God's family. They already are by faith. And why is that important? Well, because the church, what does the church exist to do again? The, the church exists to celebrate, honor, and worship Jesus as Messiah and King. And that can happen, that is happening right now. However, Right now, as things stand, Jews and Gentiles are not able to worship together. Because for a Jew, worshiping with a Gentile who is not observing these laws is unclean. And because I am a Jew, even if I count you as a brother or sister in Christ, I can't worship with you because my law, my culture, the things I am bound to say I can't worship with you. And so what James and these elders and apostles have done is they say, these four things, Gentiles, I want you to stop doing them, not because you're bound by the law, but because doing these things keeps you from being able to fellowship with the Jews, with your Jewish brothers and sisters. So stop doing them, choose to stop doing them so that we can worship together, so that fellowship is not broken. What is the lesson of this third historic moment for us? I think it's this. God's faithful people have always understood that it is the church's responsibility to remove any unnecessary obstacle that keeps people from knowing and experiencing God. It has always been this way. It is the church's responsibility to remove any unnecessary obstacle that keeps people from knowing and worshiping God. I want that to sink in for just a second. Our responsibility as a church is to do all we can to bring people to faith. And that means we have the task of removing unnecessary obstacles. And oftentimes it's so frustrating because I look at the church and I feel like we're doing exactly the opposite. We keep putting up unnecessary barriers that make it difficult for people to say, I want to become a Christian. I want to become a follower of God. And we're doing exactly the opposite of what these apostles resolved to do in Acts chapter 15. Can I share a few examples? So I don't mean to offend, I'm just saying this and throwing it out there, right? Can we all agree that an unnecessary obstacle might be our politics? 
right? So we've got, I know we've probably got about 90% Republican in this room, and that's okay. We love you guys, and, and you're amazing, and that's fine. But I want a, our church to be a place where people of different political stripes can come and feel welcomed and loved, because that should not be a barrier to coming to faith, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent. And so when I tell you sometimes, when I'm up here sharing, and sometimes I've been hacked at this, it's just like when I share that, you know, I'm leaning a bit Democrat, and I kind of do, and I really am then I want you to understand I'm not sharing it to impose any political views or values on you. I simply, I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm simply trying to remove an obstacle. Racial issues, gender issues can oftentimes also serve to be unnecessary obstacles. That's not to say that we change our beliefs and we believe whatever we want, but it breaks my heart that sometimes our thoughtlessness has created an unnecessary barrier. And I will be the first one to say I've done it. It still breaks my heart that my unnecessary words during a Q&A session when we were discussing the issue of homosexuality like months ago caused someone to be offended and leave our church without getting a chance to explain what it meant, right? It breaks my heart that a couple of years ago, my thoughtless words to a young sister about race and racism and is, ended up turning her away. And it's frustrating because I didn't necessarily say anything wrong or untrue. That wasn't the issue. The issue is I was not being thoughtful, and I created a barrier that was unnecessary, and in so doing, turned someone away from Christ, right? Turned someone away from fellowship. That's the type of stuff that we're talking about. And there's a whole host of them if we want to dive in. Big ones from things like gender roles and, and women's roles and responsibility in ministry, all the way to small ones like what team we're going to root for, right? I've already accepted that there are many non-gators in this room, and you are sinning, but we love you anyway, right? So, I mean, these are things we don't want to create any unnecessary barriers in the community of faith. I don't want us to be, and I don't want you to hear me wrong. I'm not saying that I want to be politically correct. There are necessary barriers, right? If we're going to draw a line, there are lines that the scriptures tell us need to be drawn. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, sorry, right? That is a line that we will not bend on. There are commands that God has given us that we cannot choose to disobey for the sake of being politically correct or embracing people. You understand what I'm saying. I'm saying any unnecessary barriers, we understand there are necessary ones, but we put up a lot of them that are unnecessary because we feel more comfortable that way, and the church has never been about our comfort. It's been about our being witnesses, and I think we can do a better job at this. Paul shares this in the book of Romans, and I can't help but imagine when he shares this, he had that passage in Acts, or he had that time in Acts chapter 15 in mind because he was a part of that. And he wrote in Romans chapter 14, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So these are my historical moments. The kind of hopefully the idea is to give you a better sense of what the vision of the church has been from the very beginning and how we are to operate even today. And I hope it gives us a better understanding of what it means to be and live as the church, right? So first, the church was God's idea. The purpose of God's assembled people was to celebrate, honor, and worship God. Secondly, the church has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been empowered and filled with God's Spirit to do what? To be witnesses, because the church is a movement on mission. And finally, there is a gap 
between the church and the world. And it is not the world's responsibility to find their way to us. It is the church's responsibility to remove any unnecessary obstacle that keeps people from being able to experience Christ. It is our responsibility to build the bridge, not theirs. So let's do it with humility, gentleness, graciousness, and love. Next week, you guys are in for a treat. So we're going to go through two core values next week. For those of you who are wondering, wait, we have eight in seven weeks. How is that going to? So we're going to cover two next week, and we're going to be talking through church leadership and also the value of, or the core value of love and unity. And the way we're going to do that is we're actually going to have our pastors up here, and then they're going to share with you. It's really cool because next week's also pajama day, so you know one pastor is wearing his jammies. But anyway, we're going to do that, and we're going to run through this idea in particular about how we lead in, in plurality as pastors and how we believe in that idea of love and unity, how it manifests in our church. So I'm excited about going through these topics, excited about having a chance for our church to do a deeper dive into this idea of what plurality means, what plurality looks like. And speaking of plurality, I wanted to give a uh, financial update in our church. I know that was a totally awkward transition, but I had no other way to do it, and I was tasked to do it. The pastor sat me down. I was like, Frank, you have a responsibility, and this is what you need to do, and you know how much I love these. So uh, that being said, I'm just messing. I, I want to start off by saying I love you guys, and you guys are amazing, and I am so grateful for where you guys are. We actually came into this year really excited. Um, we increased our budget to 265 which is the 265000 which is the most that our church has ever been. I don't know if that's a big amount of money or a little amount of money. It sounds like a big amount in my mind. But anyway, um, and so we're excited about the faithfulness of our saints and how you guys have been faithfully and diligently serving. And you understand that the idea is not just about how much money the church is making or anything like that at all. The idea is, man, our faithfulness in this area of giving where God tells us that I want you to be faithful, right? Give and I'm going to give back to you. This idea of this faithfulness happening is going to be a blessing to your life as well as a blessing to the community of which we are a part. And so I just wanted to commend you all first and foremost and say thank you. Uh, we haven't done one of these in like six or seven months, and I don't want you to think that we're taking you guys for granted. And we certainly don't want us to be taking our faithfulness towards God in giving for granted either. So we give our tithes and our offerings in the mailbox in the back. It does seem like a weird idea. I know it's like I'm mailing off my giving to some weird place, but that's what we do. Currently, we're about 16000 short. Uh, we attend to, as a church, wait until the last minute because, you know, we're procrastinators, and November and December usually end up pretty strong. But I just want to lay that out in front of you. It's not a huge amount, but it's a huge amount. Yeah, it's a huge amount. It's just it's a significant one. So you guys, want to encourage you guys to be faithful. I, uh, I appreciate the reminder. I was a bit behind as well, so we gave our tithe this morning. And just to say, guys, continue to be faithful, continue to persevere, love what you're doing. And if there's at any point where you feel like, man, I'd love for a better idea uh, about what the church is doing and how we spend our finances to accomplish the mission of God here in Jacksonville, feel free to talk with us, uh, to grab us anytime. We want to be an open book. We want to be accountable when it comes to our finances. And that being said, our accountability and our openness doesn't negate the fact that, man, we all have a responsibility to be faithful in the areas that God has called us to, and this is certainly one of them. Amen? 
All right, let me wrap up in order of prayer, and then we're going to kick off a really cool video and some announcements. Um, Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for these moments, for these times when we can come together as the people of God to celebrate, honor, and worship you, our Messiah and our King. And Lord, we're just so excited about the joy that we have in being in this beautiful relationship with you. And God, I don't want any of us to take you for granted. I don't want any of us to take these times for granted, these times when we can gather together as a church for the purpose of seeking you, knowing you, and being known by your spirit. God, we love you. I'm so grateful for the saints, and I pray that you impress upon us from even the things that we've been taught this morning about the church, that we would be the church, right? That we would fulfill our responsibility, that we understand that we're all parts of this beautiful body that you put us in, and that you put us in here, Lord, to, that we are incomplete without every part playing, every, every uh, limb and piece playing its part. And Lord, I just uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to keep us, um, keep our eyes set on you our hearts attentive to your still, sweet voice, our hearts mindful and loving, our hands faithful and serving, and feet shod with the readiness of the gospel, Lord. We love you, thank you, and praise you for all that you do on our behalf, always. In Jesus' name, amen.